0: This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast covering only the hottest hits and the juiciest misses. Today, talking about the function and appreciation of cover songs. This is Mark Lintemeyer, whom you may be surprised to hear was originally, in my original form, a
1: I'm Dave Hamilton. I am a podcaster, co-host of Gig Gab for working musicians. I'm a drummer, and I do all kinds of other things as well.
2: My name's Tim Quirk. I'm a front guy in a punk pop band called Too Much Joy and a dude who's, a, I guess, a tech bro douche guy,
0: <laughs> though I try not to be. And the fellow whose work uh, launched our topic today, PD, introduce yourself, say a little about this book you wrote.
3: I'm P.D. Magnus. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Albany, State University of New York. I'm a philosopher of science, and that includes, in my broad conception of science, the philosophy of cover songs. And So I wrote this recent book, A Philosophy of Cover Songs.
0: Which I have read, but I have not expected my co-hosts here to have read. It's just to have more stuff to bring in. We all come with a large amount of baggage here. In fact, Dave and I, as I've told when you've been on the, the podcast in the past, we're in a band together in the 90s, and we had to pick a bunch of cover songs. And so thinking about the way that we did that and which ones we bothered to do, which I think were mostly, which ones were easiest. Well,
1: easiest is a an ambiguous term, right? Because easiest for that band. Yes, of course. Right? It, the, the songs that fit us, but may not have been easy for any given band, but for that particular lineup and the way the four of us played music together, the covers that we picked, Worked for us. Like Elvis's Suspicious Minds was a cover that worked very well for us. It doesn't work very well for many cover bands, but it worked for us because of our skills or lack thereof. And one of the things you asked was there was something about what's the point of doing these. And it's like, well, they have to work for the lineup that's doing them and they have to be something that you can deliver and hopefully enjoy delivering, even if the song itself isn't a song you enjoy. Although I do enjoy Suspicious
0: Minds. And Tim, your band actually made it onto MTV during the day, big time, because of your cover of this uh, L. Cool J song, That's a Lie. Also, really, your version of Seasons in the Sun, of taking this sort of old-timey musical tune and doing it all naughty and punk. Like, that was fairly influential on my approach.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, my band, Too Much Joy, actually began life conceptually as a cover band. The only reason we formed the band, it was three high school friends, You know, it was 1980, and we were sick of watching our classmates Maul, Led Zeppelin, and Rolling Stones songs. And we're like, you know, why don't any of these bands play Clash tunes? It'd be so much better. And we sort of looked at each other like, they don't seem that hard to learn. We could probably do it. So we literally, he took bass lessons, I took guitar lessons, just so we could play Clash songs at high school dances. And then we realized quickly, after actually succeeding in, in implementing that plan, We'd forgotten that uh, the three of us were the only people in our high school who liked The Clash. So nobody had any idea what songs we were playing. And This was before Rock the Casbah. So we were like, well, if people are going to look at us confusedly and boo, we might as well be playing our own songs instead of cover songs. So we started writing our own tunes. But as you said, one of the things that made us semi-famous, I guess, we did a punk pop cover of LL Cool J's That's a Lie. We'd been touring around and we were just listening to that LO Cool J album radio in the van. And we kept remarking on how he was like the hip hop too much joy on how a lot of his songs sounded like too much joy songs. And that's a lie. It just seemed like if you put a couple of power chords against it, it would make a lot of sense. And it did. And he was in the video. And I don't know if that's why MTV played it during the day back when they played videos. But we made it on the air with that. And the seasons in the sun cover, we weren't trying to like punk it up so much as we were trying to bring it back to its roots and restore the missing verse that Terry Jackson had excised which made it a much more cynical and bitter tune than the sappy thing that those of us who grew up with it in the 70s grew up with.
0: PD, can you give us an opening statement here? Give us some taxonomy. We've already gotten out a few of the ideas from your book. I mean, the covers that Tim is talking about are reinterpretations. They're not trying to duplicate the original. Get us going.
3: One philosophical puzzle, or a puzzle that I think is philosophical about cover songs, is the fact that Everybody likes to talk about how cover songs are dead, and they're terrible, and they hate them. But also, musicians love to perform them, and people love to listen to them. It's this simultaneous thing. And I think part of that, at least, is a conflation of what, in the book and in work with collaborators, I've called mimic covers, on the one hand, the ones that are meant to just sound like the original as much as possible, and rendition covers, on the other hand, where rendition covers aren't meant to sound as much like the original as possible. And rendition covers are complicated because they can head in all sorts of different directions. They can be pretty straight, or they can be wildly reinterpretive.
0: And the book gets into a lot of the history, which I thought Tim would probably have a lot of as sort of a, a music scholar of soul and of stuff in the 60s. P.D., you talk about how the term cover was put together as we're covering up the original, right? That somebody puts out something on their label, let's make as close a copy as we can and try to market it heavier than theirs to literally squash them out. And we're all familiar with the stories of how that was done by white artists and white labels to make it unnecessary for white folks to go actually listen to the black stations or whatever. Or maybe they weren't going to do that anyway, but we need to somehow, it seemed exploitative. Whereas now it seems more worshipful, right? It's tribute bands. It's your favorite artists sharing their influences with you or bands that are crappy bar bands pulling some genius from the, uh, the culture so they could give you something that you can connect with, whereas if they're just playing their originals, at least you as an audience might just crap on that.
3: I think covers now are complicated. Some of them are tributes, but some of them are meant to steal commercial share from other tracks. So there was a point at which Taylor Swift's tracks weren't on certain streaming services. And there were people who made sound-alike Taylor Swift tracks as covers, submitted them to the streaming service, and they knew that people searching for the Taylor Swift song would stumble onto theirs. And because Taylor Swift was a big enough deal, as a small-time operator, they could make what for them would be some serious money off of these kind of accidental click streams. And that's really just the old school, just making mimic covers to try and chisel off some of the market share from something bigger.
2: It goes well beyond Taylor Swift and the aughts, you know, when I was working at Rhapsody, one of the first on-demand music subscription services, there were outfits that specialized in identifying all the holes in streaming services catalogs and basically any top 40 hit that wasn't yet in a service like Rhapsody or Spotify. More than one company would spring into action, create as close a version to it as they could. And we had to implement all kinds of policies about what you were allowed to name the artist, the quote unquote artist and the quote unquote song that were in the service. And it was all just to take advantage of people searching for these pop hits. Not necessarily no, like Taylor Swift. You know who Taylor Swift is, but like a band like Fun that has a top 40 hit people don't know if they're necessarily know if they're listening to the original or not. And if it was closed and Dylan was off the streaming services for a long time. So on YouTube, when his catalog was off of YouTube, there was a really, really skilled mimic who just specialized in putting up really, really sound like versions of Bob Dylan tunes. And he got all the market share that Dylan would have had on YouTube for years as a result of doing that.
1: And YouTube is still full of that. If I go search, even as we were prepping for this, If I go search YouTube for a version of a song, either an original or a cover or whatever, the search results often include covers, even when the original is right there from the artist. In fact, oftentimes the first result on YouTube is not the original artist's first party production of that song. It's, you know, someone else's, even if it's someone else's upload of that song, it's not the original artist. So, and with YouTube being, what, the number two search engine in the world... I'm certain that what you just described, Tim, was happening 20 years ago is absolutely still happening today. Yeah,
2: although I do think there's a distinction. I think what you're talking about, most of that is just fans paying homage to the artist they like and teaching themselves an instrument or hoping to get famous. But a very small percentage of it is the really deliberate, really careful mimicking of something in an attempt to disguise what it is and try to convince you that it's the real deal. But in terms of homages, you know, just as a as a touring rock band, particularly in the early days, if we had like a frat show or just a show in some venue, particularly down south, where the crowd wasn't necessarily coming for us, they were just coming for a good time. You needed a repertoire of, you know, you need to have your 20-minute version of Louie Louie and songs like Twist and Shout, they could morph into La Bamba and other things. There were literally nights when we would play You'd walk in the club and a guy would say something like, I just need two straight hours of music. I don't give a shit what you play. You'd play one or two of your own songs, but mostly it was just songs that drunk people can dance to. And I think, you know, unless
0: you get achieve a certain level of fame that just lurks forever that I'm right now with my band working up new covers because there are places that we want to play, you know, that if we just even though we have three plus hours of originals (laughs) that would not do it. So I get the idea. And I see that, as you were saying, Dave, I think more on YouTube that the people uploading these things, you know, it's somebody who I want you to get into my music. So I'm going to record some covers and hopefully you'll be attracted to that. You'll like my version and you'll click on my channel and then hear all my originals. And, you know, so that's basically the same, the digital version of that gigging strategy.
1: There's two things to say about that, probably more than two, but two come to my mind. One is As a band, there's a slippery slope that you are overlooking from a precipice, right, where it's really easy to have this whole catalog of original songs and then to either placate a crowd or get into a certain place or both, you add some covers to your set. I've been in bands where over the course of time and not a very long amount of time, the sets suddenly become zero originals and all covers because it's just easy, right? It's low-hanging fruit.
2: And it's before wh- you know it, you're super diamond. Right. But right, exactly. you're, you're exclusively a Neil Diamond cover band. Right.
1: Well, yeah, that would be the sort of the logical conclusion of that. But the middle ground is where it gets really murky, where you're just covering whatever it is you're covering with no real direction because you weren't a cover band out of the gate. So you never really thought about what do we want to do. A Neil Diamond tribute. That's a purpose-built thing. Most bands don't evolve into that. That's out of the gate, right? You say, this is what I want to do. But the bands that have been able to hold on to their original strategy of performing originals, no pun intended, history is full of those. You've got Van Halen, right? Everyone was introduced to Van Halen, if you were introduced to them in their early days, as a band that covered a kink song and and lots of other songs right ice cream man was a huge one for them and most people don't even know that that's a cover but yet it was dancing in the street those sorts of things The black crows were sort of the next one after van hill and, and we could go back to the beatles and the stones if we really yeah, want they, to they
2: started as r&b cover bands before they started writing their originals
1: exactly but they kept their focus and they didn't forget even though you know those six hour gigs in hamburg were full of lots and lots of covers but they sure learned how to sing well together, didn't they? Without monitors, but that's a whole other story. It can be done, but you have to hold on to that intention of being an original band because unless you're Joe Cocker, you are not going to achieve, you know, the level of fame that an original band can can achieve just by playing covers. I don't know how Joe Cocker did it, to be honest.
3: It's not clear exactly why the word cover means what it means, but an original meaning is in the sense of coverage. That is, record companies made small runs. And so in the early days of recording, the song wasn't associated with a particular recording artist or a particular track. And so other companies would offer the same song with their artists as coverage. And in the same way, a live band learns the songs that their audience expects to hear from live bands in that setting. And that's less insidious or dark or kind of like slimy than trying to cover over the original it's just you want to cover the things that people expect you to be able to do
2: most musicians start as fans and when you're learning how to sing or teaching yourself an instrument the natural starting point is to play stuff that somebody else wrote already before because you have to teach yourself how to write as well so there's this almost natural evolution where the majority of musicians start out playing other people's stuff gradually start mixing in some of their own the really really skilled and talented ones then become known for their own stuff but even in their as they reach the pinnacle of success and fame everybody the band and audience gets a charge when they go back to their roots and play something that inspired them either you know from back in the day or something they like today there's just always something cool about that shared communal moment as a fan or as a band when you're like oh they like that that group too I remember shortly after I moved to San Francisco going to see Wilco at the Fillmore. And the set was great, but the encores were amazing. They came out, I think they did I Want to Be Sedated by the Ramones. And then it was just like eight or nine covers in a row, basically playing all their influences that you wouldn't necessarily would think of, you know, for this at the time alt-country band. You wouldn't necessarily think they were coming from this funky place. I, I just love a good cover by a band playing something that's a little out of left field for them can just give you a lot of insight into into where they came from and elements of their music that you might not have noticed sharing common dna with some of this other stuff
1: that's always interesting to me that you know you go see a a punk band or you go see a country band or a progressive rock band or whatever and that band produces material in a specific genre and yet It's so easy, I've experienced this, you know, talking with fans in the crowd, you know, pre-show or whatever, where they just can't even imagine that their favorite country band actually might like the Ramones or might be into Miles Davis. Like, yes, our bands produce, most bands produce material that can be somewhat pigeonholed, but the musicians' likes and influences are rarely so narrow. And you're right, hearing someone play a cover as they interpret it, and it might be straighter or interpretive, depending on how they do it, can give you that insight and sort of open it up. And be like, oh, yeah, right. They're like me.
2: They like all kinds of different music.
1: <laughs> and that's
2: okay. You're reminding me, I was in, I think it was Cheyenne, Wyoming, a couple summers ago, and or it was last summer. And it was one of the first live gigs I'd seen, you know, since the pandemic had started. Cheyenne's a small town. As far as I'm concerned, is it like a New Yorker and a San Franciscan? But they were all excited the night, the night I was passing through because a national touring act was coming through. And it was some country band. They were playing some roadhouse. I was like, I got to see a country band at a roadhouse. It's not necessarily my cup of tea, but just for the experience, for the weirdest value, I figured I'd do it. I forget what they were called. I think it was the Eli Young Band, something like that. But this fairly popular pop country band. And it was just fun to see live music again. Again, it's not necessarily to my taste, but they ended their set with a cover of The Middle, you know, that's what Jimmy World song. And it was phenomenal. Everybody went batshit insane. Everybody was pogoing. It was this like, it was a whole bunch of cowboys and cowgirls, literally with cowboy boots and cowboy hats on, pogoing to this pop punk song played by a country band in a roadhouse in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And just the the mix of cultures and everything colliding and but everybody liking the same thing that was a little bit different, it was like, it's a treasured memory of mine. That was a great moment.
0: So that's always a good thing, even in my most original bands, right? Most of the shows I did with Dave throw in a couple covers as crowd pleasers, you know, as a warm-up, as an encore, stuff like that. I want to throw out Weezer as a band. Maybe it's because they're old, right? Because they're my they're 50s, you know, that now, you know, that's not old, Mark. That's not old. I I refuse to be part of anything (laughs) that
1: calls fifties old.
0: They're not in that young, I got to get my originals out. I feel so passionate about the things that are tormenting me. You know, once you've sort of gotten that out of your system and they're in a sort of unique position that they're successful enough and the record business has changed such that it was, you know, in the sixties, people put out records every year, by the 80s, 90s, it was like, oh, no, we got to bring out the big marketing machine. So put out something every three, four years. It's got to be a real build up. And now with all that crap collapsing and nothing is profitable anyway, now a band like Weezer, if they want to, is just putting out something every year. And so a couple, you know, two full albums, I believe, have been sheerly covers and purely rejoicing in music. I like covers. The I being them you know, some of it created pretty close to note perfect, but you know, it's the if you already like Weezer, if you like to hear Rivers Cuomo sing, then you'll like to hear him sing these things too. And I don't know, what do you think of that? Like is that just too I don't want to say self-indulgent? It's for an audience but is there some point being missed there or is this an all good
2: thing? There's a noble history of established acts paying tribute to their influences. You know, Bowie's pinups, it wasn't the first, but it was, you know, that was a, that was a classic rock artist saying just, he was, in, it's funny. He was only going back like eight years or so um, to the songs that shaped him. It's not the greatest Bowie record. It's not the greatest version of some of those songs, but it's cool to listen to them. A lot of Brian Ferry's solo albums um, are just his weird Euro trash version of old soul songs, uh, you know, or 60s pop hits and a lot of Dylan covers for some reason. So in the rock world anyway, I feel like what Weezer's doing now is pretty common. And especially in the streaming era, I was in a record store, which is a rare thing to do these days. But in Portland, I just went to to visit this big old record store and I was just browsing like I do, and I found like four or five lucinda williams covers records that she would put out apparently during the pandemic she'd been doing these live streams you know she did a soul night she did a dylan night she did a tom petty night and then they pressed them all up and you know turned them into cds uh, they hadn't been publicized very much but i was like i like lucinda i like soul music i want to hear lucinda doing a bunch of soul music songs i'm buying this record and i was like oh what the hell i'll buy the tom petty covers as well So I love it, you know, but I'm a completist. When I love an artist, I need everything they've ever done. Then I need to find out who their influences are. And then I need everything they've ever done. So covers just hit my completist self in my sweet spot.
1: Because you're a fan of music, you want to know that the artists you like are also fans of music. And and performing a cover from that angle, the angle that you started this thread with, Mark, really does feed that. It's like, okay, we're going to connect on a different level here because you like my music and that's great, but we both like that person's music. And so let's celebrate that together. And is it self-indulgent? I hope so, right? Like, I hope when I go see an original band and they choose a cover, I hope they're choosing it for themselves first. And not just because they think, oh, well, if we play Twist and Shout, you know, uh, we we might sell more tickets the next time we're in this, you know, in this market. Hopefully they're picking it because they love it and wanting to share that experience because there is that shared experience. Even if, you know, the four of us get together and no none of us are playing music and we put on records, that would almost certainly bond us in new ways. Right. You know, I was I was playing a gig down in Boston at the Middle East a couple of weeks ago and the sound engineer was if he was 25 you know that was the maximum his age was and he was great we did our our sound check we got our you know everything good to go and then he put on big stars second album to play in the house and i as guess i heard it coming on i was like is he really playing big star and so i went up to him like how do you know like this is big star it's, did you put this on he's like. Oh, I love this band, and it became this thing, right? And so, music, shared interests, shared loves, bond us, and I, I think that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, and I'll say, I did a fair amount of you know music writing and, and uh, band interviewing in the '90s and aughts. and a lot of times musicians can be pretty prickly about talking about their stuff. Or just bored because they've been asked the same question so many times and, you know, they'll just fuck around with you. So I found the best way to have a productive conversation with a band that's in the middle of a press run is just talk about other bands, you know, they like. And if you start there, then you can gradually get into their own music and it's a much more natural conversation.
3: Although I think it's worth mentioning that people in the audience won't necessarily know the original. Right. Even if the artist is performing it as this homage to this thing they think is great, there will be people in the audience who come to multiple shows and hear the same cover or like more performances of the same cover. And for them, that becomes the canonical version of that song. I had a student come to office hours, I guess a little over a year ago. He'd just been in a conversation with several friends of his. So this is college age kids and. All of them had thought that the Johnny Cash version of Hurt was the original. He had this inkling that it wasn't, and he'd had to go to the internet. And I was like, yes, I know, right? It's just like, yeah, I'm aware. Nine Inch Nails, I've heard of them. Trent Reznor, heard of him. But it's the generational thing. For them, It just it's the one they've heard. It defines what the song should sound like. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It puts them in a different position with respect to appreciating the cover, for them, they're primarily appreciating it without that reference, without that homage.
2: The cultural version of that, to my mind, is Aretha Franklin's version of Respect, where almost nobody, very, very few people, would think of Otis Redding's version as the original at this point. It's just like Aretha Franklin's version so completely surpassed what Otis Redding was doing with that song that it really became her song. And you hear Otis Do it, and you're like, oh, he's covering what a weird cover of Aretha Franklin's song that is. Whereas you know the Johnny Cash thing, it's like, oh, those young whippersnappers, they don't understand. So I find it amazing when a cover version of a song becomes not just more commercially successful than the original, but like has longer lasting cultural impact.
3: And that impact was almost immediate, actually, because there's a capsule review of Stevie Wonder's version of Respect. He did a pretty straight rendition of Otis Redding's version the capsule review in billboard says that you could put it in a jukebox as an answer song to aretha franklin's song of the same name doesn't mention redding at all wow no internet
1: (laughs) we have a history of of this happening to otis redding right because when i was in high school hard to handle was a black crow song every no one (laughs) no one knew i think it was when the commitment soundtrack came out that people are like wait a minute (laughs) like this is not the Black Crows? It's like, no. But then there's songs that that never... I mean, Otis Redding is an established artist and was an established artist, but there's those covers that become the canonical version, and that never changes, right? You've got Tainted Love, right? That's not a Soft yep. Cell tune, but it really is a Soft Cell tune, right? Like, it was never put into the public canon until Soft Cell did it, right? And so arguably like Valerie, the Amy Winehouse, Mark Ronson cover. It's another one of those that I don't think will ever get recredited back to like the Zutons or whoever it was
0: that did it. So speaking of uh, Otis Redding, you're making me think of Michael Bolton's sitting on the dock of the Bay, which (laughs) I don't know if that eclipsed the original one, but that's one of those ones that it's kind of a straight cover. I don't remember the details of it, frankly, but other than people make fun of Michael Bolton, but it's a guy with a big voice trying to do this thing. but with updated production values, right? That people won't, they're not going to be into Shondell's I think they're alone now. So Tiffany will put out her up to the minute 80s version and that will be a big hit. It seems like there's a, uh, I don't know, what do you guys think of that whole people from the present day, they can't handle old technology. They can't handle listening to things from the 60s. So I need to put out a version, we'll put out Behind Blue Eyes by Limp Biscuit, just to make it so the young people can, can actually get it. Smash Mouth
1: did it, right? With I'm a Believer, that became... Mm. I mean, it was in Shrek, too, which, which really helped like send it to an audience. But that easily eclipsed for a demographic and for quite some time, and perhaps even still, the, you know, the Monkees version. So,
3: Although, like production value and energy level can matter. Like, Joan Jets and the Blackhearts doing I Love Rock and Roll is just so much better than The Arrows. R.E.M. doing Superman is far and away better than The Clique.
1: Yeah, but nobody really knew The Clique other than the guys in R.E.M.
2: When I went back to the original, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And I listened to it, I was like, oh man, what did they even hear in this? I got to say, I'm, this is embarrassing to admit, given how, how important soul music is to me now, but I was literally introduced to it by the Blues Brothers, right? Like Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. My understanding is Dan Aykroyd was the real soul music fan. He turned John Belushi it, onto it and then Belushi like, went crazy with it. But, you know, they introduced a whole generation of kids like me to this music that wasn't that old at the time. But to me, it was ancient history. And I never would have known who Donald Dunn was or who Steve Cropper was or anything about fame or Stacks or anything if it wasn't for fucking John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd being fans of the music and wanting to play it for other people.
1: And does that go back to Mark's point about Aykroyd and Belushi being white? covering black people's music. I mean, I realize it wasn't, I don't think, intended to be as terribly exploitative as the origins of the word cover, but it was still very much targeted at white audiences at a time when things were not necessarily happening that way.
2: MTV at the time wasn't playing black artists. They just weren't. So it to me, it was less about oh, we need to make this black music safe for white people. It was more about, oh, the milieu I was growing up in, the stations I was listening to or watching, they just were never going to play this music. It needed some kind of ambassador to bring it to me. My understanding, at least, of the, I could be wrong about this, but I, I think the folks that wound up in the Blues Brothers movie and wound up back in the band like actually were appreciative of the fact that they were given them you know they were exposing them to a younger generation and and a wider audience than the music was at risk of fading from the cultural memory to some extent
1: it may well have faded if it weren't for the blues brothers like that was a huge
0: thing to happen to soul music including some of the original artists in the movie as guests and things like this is all shows the intent. The paradigm of the exploitative thing is, uh, so I don't know if Pat Boone is the best example, but that's at least the name that comes to mind of we need to make this black music less scary. We need to have recorded, not just have a white person mimicking a black person, but we need to actually change the tone and make it lighter. But that seems like a very distinctly 60s phenomenon.
2: I don't know how 60s it is, but there's definitely this sense of cultural appropriation we now feel is wrong. I remember back in the 80s, before that term really gained much currency, I went to see The Clash, the, the late version of The Clash after Mick had been fired and Topper was a junkie and was no longer in the band. So it was this weird facsimile of The Clash. But Joe Strummer, before they launched into Police and Thieves, he started giving Sting in the police shit for playing white reggae. And he said, this is how you do it, Sting. It's not about just like taking someone else's culture. It's about bringing some of your own culture to another culture. And then they launched into, you know, their punked up version of Police and Thieves. And just like the Blues Brothers turned me on to, to old soul music, The Clash turned me on to reggae and dub that I would not, might not have encountered otherwise, except for all the kids in my high school who love Bob Marley. But that never really did it for me. But once I got turned on to funk, Funky Kingston and Toots and the Maytals, things were different for me. I found that interesting at the time that there was I couldn't quite articulate what the difference was of the Clash incorporating their reggae influences into their music and the police incorporating their reggae influences into their much more successful pop music. But Joe Strummer certainly saw a difference. And I don't think it's easy to define, but I think there's a moral difference between bringing some of your own to somebody else's stuff and just taking someone else's stuff
1: the difference is that one of those bands had sting as a lead singer
2: (laughs) well that's not just
3: the difference because
0: no i know i was i was being reductive let's stop for just a few minutes talk about our sponsors before you book any brunch you pour over lists and lists of reviews so why not do the same when you're booking a doctor's appointment with zocdoc you can see real verified patient reviews to help find the right doctor in your network and in your neighborhood After all, finding the right doctor is just as, if not more important, than finding the right plate of eggs benedict. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. You can use ZocDoc to find any specialist under the sun, whether you're trying to straighten those teeth, fix an achy back, or get that mole checked out, anything else, ZocDoc has you covered. ZocDoc's mobile app is as easy as ordering a ride to a restaurant or getting delivery to your house. Search find and book doctors with a few taps. And again, you can find and review local doctors. You read verified patient reviews from real people who made real appointments. So when you walked into that doctor's office, you're all set to see someone in your network who gets you. Go to ZocDoc.com. Find the doctor that is right for you. Book an appointment in person or remotely that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. I have used ZocDoc. It is my go-to whenever I need to find and book a quality doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP and download the ZocDoc app for free Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash PMP. ZocDoc.com slash PMP. It can be hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel when you have high interest debt. Sometimes it can be even harder to ask for help, but that's where Upstart comes in. Upstart-powered personal loans can can help you pay down high interest debt like credit card debt all online with simple and easy to understand payment terms. They have helped over 1.8 million customers on their path to financial freedom. So maybe you've got debts on a bunch of different cards. Maybe you have personal expenses you need to take. Upstart can get you one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Now, what if your credit score is not great? Well, Upstart knows you're more than your credit score, so rather than looking at just that, their model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate within minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000 without impacting your credit score, and you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Don't wait. Check your rate today at upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart dot com slash pretty to check your rate today. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided on your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty.
3: Eric Clapton's cover of I Shot the Sheriff, which is later than the sixth. So this phenomenon is both what occurred in the fifties as well as the sixties, but also occurred later. Again to refer to at the time billboard reviews, there's this Really strange capsule review of uh, Clapton's I Shot the Sheriff, in which they describe it as having the outlaw sound of the Cisco kid. It's clear that they're not even catching on to like the kind of reggae influence on the way Clapton's playing. They hear it as this kind of like country and Western thing. And that's a case where you, they miss a whole lot of what's going on because they don't get the reference. They don't get where it's coming from. I mean, in a way, it's not a reference. Clapton. Doesn't care if you're thinking of the original source for that song. Yeah, he definitely made it his own. Co opting it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you're right. It became more of a country thing now that you mention it. Knowing that it comes from reggae, it's hard not to hear the reggae in it. But Mm -hmm. if you take that away and you just come in with beginner's mind, then yeah, sure,
3: I guess. But I I think that's actually a mistake. You misunderstand deeply what's going on if you come in with, (laughs) if you just come in with beginner's mind in that case. Yes.
2: I like that phrase, beginner's mind. You know, now that I know more about the history of the music that, that I loved as a teenager, I go back and listen to a lot of records from the 80s. I'm like, oh, that's the reggae song on this record. But at the time, it was just new It was all new wave to me.
0: Yeah. PD's book has a whole chapter kind of on, do you have to get the reference? Do you have to have heard the original? And of course, I mean, music is supposed to be, there's probably a better a technical term, multivalent, You know, that is open-ended in a way that not just in its meaning that people can get different things out of it. I don't want to explain my lyrics. I want people to get what they want to get out of it. But even just the tone and the sociology of it, of like a really popular, The Cars was my favorite band in high school. And I pointed you guys out a version of Just What I Needed, perhaps at least what I considered their best song for a long time, by Poison that i just detest because i don't like poison and i don't okay. like their style their attitude but there was something ambiguous about the cars that they could appeal to sort of like i'm uh you know a young nerd and there's some of them look nerdy and they have tweaky tweaky keyboards and so i can kind of project that teenage alienation my version of that onto them but they're also the reason that they got so famous is because they could appeal to the stoners and the the cool crowd so Poison takes an aspect of that sociology. They play the song straight. They play it competently. They leave out the keyboards. And I no longer like it because it, it's like they strip the attitude. It's like, I, because I don't like them as human beings, not because I don't like them. I was going to say, you almost want to be able to come
1: into the Poison cover of that with Beginner's Mind and and not mm-hmm. having the baggage of what you know about Poison. I don't have that baggage about Poison. And when I played that version, I'm like,
3: Actually, this is pretty, like, it's fine. It seemed seemed to me like it flattened out all the interesting phrasing from the original, though. Like, it's like they quantized all the phrasing. (laughs) Fair. Yeah, fair.
1: Sure. I mean, they made it a poison.
3: They didn't do it digitally, but they just, like, delivered it flat. They delivered (laughs) it like
1: poison delivers.
3: Yeah, and it it isn't a great song if you you deliver it like poison.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an interesting thing, right? Like, the nuance, covering a song... The ability and the skill that can be developed with intention of going after the nuances that are important to preserve the escape, right? The Pina Colada song is a fantastic example of this because I've seen bands cover it and it's just like flat. And then I watched a video of Rupert Holmes, right? I have the right Rupert in mind. Okay. I wanted to say Rupert Hine, but that's the producer. Mm-hmm. So Rupert Holmes performing it and the phrasing of each line and how each chorus not only has different lyrics, but is phrased differently and notes are held for different lengths. And he was conducting his backup singers through these to like cut them off at the right times because evidently they weren't as rehearsed as he would have <laughs> preferred. But watching him do that, it was like, right, mm-hmm. this is the key to that song because that song, when it was recorded, they didn't have budget to have the, the whole band come in and track it, so they had recorded 32 bars of that song and just looped it. Then they had Steve Jordan come in when they knew it was going to be a hit. They had Steve Jordan come in and play a second drum track on top of it to give it some flow, but the guitar line, everything else is just 32 bars, copy-paste until the song's over. But it's his vocal delivery and the lyrics, too. You know, I mean, they're they're sort of universal, right? But his vocal delivery makes it what it is and gives it that lift in those peaks and valleys that if you just put the paper in front of you and read it, it just comes across flat. So there's a skill in that.
2: There are cover versions that do the reverse, that take what seems like a flat, one-dimensional song and reveal nuance in it. And a lot of times you go into them assuming they're an ironic cover. I'm thinking of like when Aztec Camera did Van Halen's Jump. And they turned that, you know, party song into you know a tender folk rock ballad, basically. And then you listen to it and you're like, no, I think he actually just realizes it's a good song. I don't think he's joking with this cover of jump. <laughs> just like this is a composition that's like actually I can do bit more justice to than than the composer did.
1: Sorry, PD, you mentioned Superman, the REM cover. I was exposed to that, as I'm sure many, many people were, as an REM song. I had no idea it was a cover. For many years. And then, you know, like Tim, I'm a completist. If I'm into a band, I want to know all the things. And so I dug and stumbled on the fact that this was a cover and wanted to hear the original. And And then realized, as we said earlier, oh, wait, R.E.M. found some nuances in this that, that were buried by the way the original was created. And thank goodness they did because they made it into the song that it could be. They realized this song's potential in a way that the original artist, at least on the day they recorded it, did not.
0: What was your experience then with King of the Road? Oh, so, so I, you know, R.E.M.'s version is just famously drunken and they even write in the, in the liner notes like, um, we're really sorry, Roger. Please don't kick our asses. Something yeah. Like that.
1: I, yeah. I think perhaps because of the liner notes, I knew that that was a cover and a drunken one at that. So I, I never took it as, it was not a surprise to me that that was a cover. I think I knew that right out of the gate. But
2: you know who has a great cover of King of the Road though? Roger Miller from Mission of Burma on a solo album does just this really cool keyboard version of King of the Road. It's all like, you know, Mac keyboards and stuff. It's it's it sounds super weird, but it's I like it as much as the original. Wait, his name, I love his name, and I love his
0: name is Roger Miller covering a Roger Miller? Or did you yeah. know, oh. Uh, wow. No, he's, it's
2: Roger Miller covering a Roger Miller song.
0: All right. Yeah, I was wondering about that, too. <laughs> but to tie it
1: all together, R.E.M. did an awful cover of the Academy fight song that never really <laughs> saw the light of day, thank goodness. You know, but it did expose me to Mission of Burma, so that was a good path, right?
3: I think this is actually one of the complexities of evaluating rendition covers, is that sometimes they can be really great for ways that they diverge from the original, like they take it in a different direction. But sometimes part of the way that they can be great is recognizing what's important to keep from the original. So it's not like just change is good, nor is it the case that following the original is good. It's having some sensitivity to which bits matter.
1: Yeah. It's that self-awareness of what attracted me to this song in the first place. Let's make sure we, you know, our prime directive is let's preserve that. These are the sacred cows in this song. And then the rest would just let come out however they want to come out through our way of doing it either intentionally or accidentally. And that then yeah, magic can doesn't always happen.
2: Although I'm going to, I'm going to go back to seasons in the sun here because my band covered that. And the reason we covered it was I had found, it's hard to say what's the original of this song. I had found what I considered the original at the time when I was in college, there's a Rod McEwen album called seasons in the sun. So I knew Rod McEwen is this like kind of trashy, you know, mass market quote unquote poet that had you know, hugely selling paperback books of his, of his atrocious poetry. I hadn't realized he was also a spoken word artist and a singer. And this album had testimonials on the back from Phyllis Diller and Vincent Price, which is what made me spend the $5 on it. It's like, I have to hear Rod, Rod McEwen's version of Seasons in the Sun. And I listened to it and it's so weird. It's like it's with this weirdly strummed acoustic guitar. It's sort of like this beat poetry version of it. But most importantly, it has this third verse that Terry Jacks left out of his 14 million selling pop hit of the 70s, where you realize that the guy singing it, you know, the guy who's dying is not singing this maudlin song about how much he's going to miss his wife and friends and kids. It's how bitter he is that his wife cheated on him with his best friend and he's going to haunt them from the afterlife. And I just thought that was amazing and so much better and so much greater than the Terry Jacks version. And I come to find out Ron McEwen's version was a semi-cover because he took a Jacques Brel song that was written entirely in French and he said he just translated it and sort of like cleaned it up for American ears But actually he completely boulderized the Brell tune, which was even more cynical than Rod McEwen's. But the weird thing is, like ten different people did covers of Seasons in the Sun in the 60s. So Rod McEwen wrote the English version. The Kingston Trio did a version. Uh there was this British band, I forget their name. The Beach Boys did a version they never released. Um the Terry Jacks produced. He was trying he knew the song would be a hit and he was trying to get them to do it. And when he couldn't get them to release their version, he recorded his own. But he made a fundamental change, which I'm convinced is what's prevented all the other songs from ever being hits. He took out the cynical verse and he replaced it with a verse he wrote that was even more maudlin than the first two verses. So basically what he realized was people just wanted to weep and cry, and they didn't want an ironic twist at O. Henry twist at the end. And I'm convinced that him taking out what I thought was the thing that made the song important and good was actually what made it this world-conquering smash.
0: So whether you're retaining or injecting or finding the emotion in something like that, if we want to generalize, so some of my favorite covers are ones like, uh, like the Peter Gabriel Scratch My Back album. So it's like, I don't know, again, a guy who's old enough Maybe doesn't have that many original songs bubbling that he has to get out, but approach these covers with like fully as much creativity as you would an original. And so, so took a song like Heroes or one of the Paul Simon songs, The Boy in the Bubble, you know, that was fast in its original version and found the despair in them and, you know, beautiful, slowed down despair. I also sent you guys The Residents, sort of known purely even their originals. It's just. Is it music? It's a deconstruction of music. It's some kind of avant-garde thing. And so they did a whole album of Elvis covers that is just to show what a sad, pathetic individual Elvis was and just really get at the grit in it. You know, that's an interesting whether, you know, it's not that I want to listen to that residence album multiple times. Like it's sort of a performance thing. It's not necessarily something I want to sit with in the way that I do the Peter Gabriel one, but in both cases, I feel like that. Often it's a meditation on the song and what its inner meaning is to you or something like that. And I don't know, maybe that's just my intellectual take on it. That to me has a reason to exist. Of course, there's a function for like, well, the original artist isn't here and we're in a bar together. So I'm going to play you these songs like that's totally legitimate such that in that setting, you could say if you're in a bar band to, to go back to where we started and you're playing your originals, well, that's that's very self-indulgent of you. The audience doesn't really want to hear that. Like what, you know, the fact that utilitarian, that you could use that to rip on cover songs, but at least it has a purpose. (laughs) Whereas the delivery of a particular original at a particular time, you know, may have less of a purpose to wrap up. What are you actually looking for in a good cover? I
1: am fortunate to be playing in original bands again, and one of them, Bitter Pill, is doing fairly well. We end most of our shows with our cover of Minnie the Moocher, which is, you know, a hundred year old tune and we play it because people come to hear our songs and it's been spectacular. In fact, especially over the last year, there's just more and more people showing up that know the lyrics, but we don't know who they are. And it's, it's wonderful. Right. But that moment with Minnie the Moocher and we have some other tunes that we do this with too, but you know, it just, it ties everyone in the room together in a way that is specifically not self-indulgent. It's not like, hey, we know you came to hear us and we know you know the lyrics to our song so we're going to play our song and we'll celebrate that together because it's ours. This is, we're taking ourselves out of it. We're just having this moment of bonding of everyone in the room and yes, we're the ones playing the song but everybody's really singing along and it's it becomes this immersive, collective community experience that is quite wonderful. And so I think of covers in their best use as that there's other uses that are fine i don't mean to condemn all other uses like wedding bands have a very specific use for covers and it would be i have actually played bands uh, played weddings in an original band but that's that's a very specific thing it generally speaking you know you want covers and that's fine too that serves a purpose because the original artists aren't available to play your wedding sir. That's how that goes. But yeah, that, to me, a fantastic use of covers is exactly that. Just to tie the audience and musicians and the, tie the room together in a way that is not self-indulgent.
2: I would echo that. I, I think there's three possible things I could get from a good cover experience. The first is just turn me on to something I didn't know already. That's what the Blues Brothers did. That's what a lot of bands that I love do. The second, if I do know the song, is show me something in the song that I've missed, that you have insight into, and make me see it in a new light. And the third is what Dave's mentioning, just, you know, let's have a communal experience where we bond over our shared love of the same object. And if you can do, if you can do more than one of them at a time, even better.
3: I'd just add, though, I think there's an important thing covers can do, which is the same thing in a, uh, an original song or a performance of an original song could do. It's just like there's some immediate this is awesome to listen to. When somebody finds a way to make a cover and perform it and it's awesome to listen to, all the reference, all of the history can be important. There's a level of value in that. But there's also just some value in listening to it as its thing, which is not like because it's a cover, but just because it's a performance or a recording of a of a song.
0: Yeah. So in other words, the same <laughs> qualities that you would apply to any other thing Go to the cover.
3: Right. It's not like making it a cover makes it no longer able to carry that kind of immediate aesthetic awesomeness that a really good track or performance can have.
0: So I was looking through a lot of playlists and articles and things about cover bands. One of the, Willie Nelson is another guy who you just, you just like, if you're a Willie fan, you just like his voice and he could kind of sing the phone book, as they say, you could sing anything. So he covered Paul Simon's American song, which American tune. Yeah. American tune. There you go. And the particular voicing of that, of, I've observed this. Like, it's a very personal kind of, like, here are my philosophical thoughts about things from Paul Simon. That for me, that kind of song, I don't care how wonderful Willie's voice is. I don't want to hear that coming out of anybody else's mouth. Like, so if, as a a locution, it is, fight the power, fight the power. Like, if it is something that is sort of meant to be spread meant to be viral, then making that into a cover, absolutely natural. If it is some very specific thing about the individual's life or observations, then it seems just weird to do it as a cover. I don't, I don't like that. We had this conversation on gig gab recently about
1: covering rap songs because so many, you know, so many rap songs are very personal. The the lyrics to them, the poetry and then whatever you want to call that is very personal to the original artist. And yet we and we had of all the topics we've had in the last, you know, in seven years, that's definitely top five in terms of listener feedback. And we heard from so many bands that are like, no, no, it's totally fine to cover a rap song. You just can't do it with your tongue in your cheek. You have to own it and deliver it as though for what it is. You don't have to act like it's yours as a dramatic monologue. It's a yes, correct. It's a right. Like it's a dramatic monologue. Yeah. It's performance art. That someone else wrote, and we're all acknowledging that someone else wrote it. But I'm going to deliver it in a meaningful way, and they say it works out great.
3: So it's also interesting you give American Tune as the example because I was a big Simon and Garfunkel fan in high school. I owned the complete works or the complete Simon and Garfunkel. I didn't own the complete Paul Simon, so I hadn't heard American Tune before I picked up Across the Borderline when it was new, which is the album that the Willie Nelson version is on. I later heard the Paul Simon version. I love the Paul Simon version, but I also love the Willie Nelson version. I think Across the Borderline is a great album, just like like all the songs on there are really great versions. So I actually disagree about that specific example, because for me, even though I was a fan of Paul Simon, I encountered the Willie Nelson version of American Tune first. There are these big poetic images of the Statue of Liberty sailing away to sea, which I don't know what the hell Paul Simon was thinking when he, thinking when he wrote that. But it's like a great, people can put kind of a different spin on that. I think that's a song that carries really well over to covering.
0: I think we cannot leave without saying at least a little about naughty covers, disrespectful covers, something. I think often it is not really clear. So like Cake's version of I Will Survive, which I love. Is that making fun of the original? Is it participating in the original? I've had people say, look, they just couldn't write a song as good as the original. (laughs) And so this is why you're going to enjoy it. And I kind of maybe like it better than most cake songs. Also their version of guitar man. I like quite a bit better than the, the original version or, you know, the previous version of that. Yeah. And I've done versions myself. Like I think I covered Dave. Did we do raspberry beret together? I don't know. I've done that in subsequent bands. I think we did it. la the Hindu love gods, which was three fourths of REM
1: plus Warren Zevon. I think I remember doing that in some band. I can't remember if that was with you or not, but yes.
0: Right. Or I shared with you a version of Billie Jean. And like, I don't think these are parodies exactly, but they are. I'm not going to try to sing like a soul singer or whatever. So I guess they're cross genre.
1: What about like Tom Jones cover of Kiss? The first time I heard that, I didn't know if he was a Prince fan or or if he was poking fun at it like it because it's Tom Jones. Everything's tongue in cheek.
2: Or take John Coltrane's version of My Favorite Things, which completely explodes the song, takes it in an entirely new direction. But the fact that he's taking this, the most white bread tune you can possibly imagine from The Sound of Music, and, you know, this black experimental jazz musician is turning it into something completely different. It's not a respectful take on the song, I don't think but it's transcendent. I don't think he's paying homage to the song. I think he's basically trying to deconstruct it.
1: Interesting. I always heard that as he loved the melody and saw different things that you could do while using just the melody as the framework. I never stopped to think that it might have been not that at all.
3: When you're talking about disrespectful covers, though, I think to circle back to something that came up early, Aretha Franklin's cover of Respect is a repudiation Mm -hmm. of the Otis Redding version. I mean, the Otis Redding version is like, misogynistic and uh, demand on his woman. And the Aretha Franklin version, it becomes an anthem because it's a, everybody deserves respect, I deserve respect, like, it's not sort of instrument of oppression in the same way that the Otis Redding version was. to say. Yeah,
0: you, we should explain this just because I had not actually heard the Otis Redding version of this before this conversation. And the Otis Reddick version is, when I come home, I want respect from you. I want
3: my
2: my dinner.
0: (laughs) Right. And also,
3: please don't cat
0: around and have affairs with other people
3: while I am in town. Like, it it gives his woman permission to cuckold him, provided he is on tour. But when he's in town, she should not. It's very, yeah, it's Aretha's version, even though it's musically similar and picks up a lot of the lyrics, is in some ways an answer song to otis reddings like she adds lyrics that make it the character she's singing as responds to the otis redding character
1: which feeds into the review you mentioned earlier of stevie
0: wonder's cover of otis's thing which they saw backwards but you know yeah i love the jonathan colton version of baby got back it is just such a pretty (laughs) song pd your book talked about an equivalent one the Richard Cheese
1: version of these songs, because that's a whole other thing. Turning, no. tur- well, just taking songs and turning them
0: into lounge songs. Oh, are you
3: are you talking about acapella versions of yes, Ben Folds covering Dr. Dre? Yes, which the- bitches ain't shit. Yeah,
0: which I'm not sure. I, I think there maybe I can't speak to the original of the Dr. Dre in terms of what Dave was saying about rap. But Baby Got Back is not a personal piece. No, <laughs> like it is a joke song in the first place. So making it a different joke. Totally fine. Nothing.
1: In fact, that was one of the more frequently mentioned rap songs that was great to cover from all the email that we got about that topic. Mm-hmm. So,
2: Or perhaps my, my personal ultimate and disrespectful cover versions is Sid Vicious doing My Way. Sure. Which if you think about it is a punk rock cover of My Way is the most, the best way to honor a song with the lyric of My Way. But I do not believe Frank Sinatra was pleased.
1: Wow. But that wasn't the intent, was it?
2: Yeah. So can No, we, he, was, he, was, he, was, he was not seeking Frank Sinatra's approval.
0: Can we close down here with one more go-around just with a something that we have not mentioned yet, a particular idiosyncratic favorite cover of yours, PD. Start us with what is the most important thing we have not yet brought to the table.
3: I don't know that it's the most important thing. You said idiosyncratic favorite. Yes. In the course of researching this book, I have to say YouTube was great. I mean, this book would have been hard to write before I could just find a whole bunch of covers online but one cover that haunted me for like it was an earworm that stuck with me for days was rem's cover of first we take manhattan by leonard cohen it's not a universal favorite but for me it just haunted me for a long time after i listened to it so i'll offer that
1: dave any i think i got all of all of the things that were important to me and with the possible exception of the cover song that actually helped the original artist and a great example of that is desperado the eagles wrote it and recorded it but of course it was linda ronstadt who actually made that song popular because people didn't like eagles version or didn't care about it perhaps is a better way to say it but they cared a lot about linda ronstadt's version but then that opened the door for a fairly decent career for the eagles from that point forward and i'm i'm understating their career of
2: course (laughs) tim do you have one more to pull out of your hat? Well, since you just mentioned Linda Ronstadt, I'm going to mention Linda Ronstadt cover of, you know, any Linda Ronstadt cover of a Warren Zevon song. She's what brought me to him, you know, way back in the day. Um, so I have a soft spot for those. That said, as much as I love her version of Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me, it's a completely different song than when Warren Zevon sings it. Because when she sings, Oh, These Boys Won't Let Me Be, she's serious. She's like, Oh, these boys won't let me be. She, I'm Linda Ronstadt. When Warren Zevon sings Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me, like, you know, dude literally wants to die. And is making fun of his own death wish. So my closing recommendation, you mentioned Big
0: Star, Dave, and that is I'm definitely in the little cult of Alex Chilton. There was a new thing that they just, I just discovered researching today that they just just released a, a 1975 EP that Chris Bell had engineered and I had not heard this, you know, five songs, you know, sloppily done incomplete. So, you know, we clutch at straws from this man and his, uh he put out an album called cliches that opens with my baby just cares for me, this classic, which I wasn't, you know, had never really heard the original and that particular version just stuck with me. It remains one of my favorite songs, my favorite versions. And it's just because there's something about this guy's voice and his damaged, goofy, you know, lovable personality that just like hearing him do that song and he has, you know, what's your sign, girl? He has Oogum Boogum. He has, he's really somebody that gave up on his own songwriting at some point. And like, he just was very self-deprecating, even though he did this sort of genius level stuff, acknowledged as such in the, in the early 70s. Just kind of, oh, I'm just going to punk around and play covers and it'll be fine. So just hearing the essence of that, I would recommend for folks. Well, thanks for all of you for participating in this. Anybody that has a few more minutes, we might record some more supporter material just to maybe PD, if you we could talk about a couple more actual points from your book. <laughs> but mostly, I, it's such an easy book to read and it's free. So we will mm-hmm. you know, look at the blog post associated with this episode and we will link right to it. Open book publishers put it out. And I don't think it was necessarily the best use of our time. I would have been okay if us us just kind of walking through it chapter by chapter, but you could read the whole thing in a couple of days, and they should get that out of it themselves.
3: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Same, this was great. I love this. That I could I could sit here. Yes. It's easy.
1: It's obvious. We could all easily sit here for like three more hours because <laughs> as, as you mentioned, you know, Alex Chilton and Big Star again. It was like, oh, I have like four more things that I could share that just spring from that, <laughs> which is great. Like I that that's that communal. You know, bonding over this uh-huh. shared shiny thing that we all like. So,
2: all right. And Tim, plug your new album. Well, there's a new album coming out in October, but the most recent one that you can still buy today, that you can buy today, is called Mistakes Were Made. It came out last year and has no covers on it. <laughs> but it's sweet anyway. All right. Thanks, thanks. listeners.